Good morning. So, if you have been, um, if you've been in church for more than a few moments or any given amount of time, odds are you have probably either been hurt by the church, know someone that's been hurt by the church, or have witnessed someone being hurt by the church. It's a tough reality. Had a conversation with a new acquaintance uh, several days ago, uh, and we were talking, and, and when people ask what I do, and I tell them I'm a pastor, the conversation always goes to church, and I, I just say, hey, are you plugged into a church somewhere? And she said, nope, I'm not, because the church hurt me and my husband. So she doesn't go. If you've been around church ministry uh, for any given amount of time, it, it's, it's inevitable. It, it's, in fact, it, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, because we are broken, flawed people. I am broken. I, I'm actually kind of a mess. Uh, you guys, whether you realize it or not, are, are broken, but by the grace of God, we are coming together, doing the best that we can to grow deeper into our relationship with Jesus Christ. But because we are flawed, sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we say things we shouldn't say, do things we shouldn't do, and inevitably that ends up hurting people from time to time. Similarly, if you've been around ministry, around a church, involved in a uh, church for more than a few moments, you've probably seen, experienced, or been involved in fighting inside the church. They're horror stories of churches breaking up and splitting over something. People getting angry and walking away from church, from ministry altogether. It just, it's the nature of ministry on this side of eternity in a broken world. It's inevitable. Churches fight about silly things, too. Really, really silly things. I, I was thinking through kind of some of my personal experiences, and I'm like, you know what? Let's see what the internet has to say about things that churches fight over, and I came across a list. It was done uh, by Tom Rainier, who um, basically compiled, did a Twitter survey, and compiled a list of the 25 most interesting things that churches fight over. I have 10 of them here I think are pretty— uh, I just, let's just talk about them. Number one, uh, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. We've got that one covered. I feel like we're good there, right? Uh, number two, uh, a church dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Now, uh, listen, men don't get them. I'm not sure why ladies get them. I kind of, I kind of agree with that. Number three, uh, a church argument or in a vote to decide if a clock should be removed from the worship center. I thought that was funny. Number four, a petition to have all of the church staff clean-shaven. Now, as someone who is facial follically challenged, I agree with this. I think this is absolutely appropriate. If I can't have a beard, no one should have a beard. <laughs> Number five, a dispute over whether or not the worship leader uh, should have his or her shoes on during the service. I thought that, or when they're leading worship, that's interesting. Uh, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. This is important stuff. <laughs> Like, this is kingdom stuff here. I get this. Number seven, an argument over whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal, because the devil, right? That's, I get that. A disagreement on whether or not to use the term potluck instead of pot blessing. Uh, church broke up over that. A dispute on whether or not the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts in worship, because black is the color of the devil. Okay? And then last but not least, a church member was actually chastised because she brought a bottle of vanilla to the coffee cart and it looked too much like booze and that caused a big issue. Church unity is something that is vital. It's 
vital. It's perhaps one of the most important things that we are going to talk about, uh, about us being unified, the church being unified. Now, uh, real quick, I'm going to define what church is. It's Big C Church. It's the church eternal. It's not so much Sheridan Wesleyan Church. I think for the most part, we get along. We have fun. Uh, we, 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 I mean, there's, there's things, right? Because we're b- broken and flawed. But, but this is the bigger picture. God's church unifying. Removing denominational lines and working together for the good of the kingdom. Putting secondary doctrine issues aside and coming together, uniting for the sake of the kingdom. Church unity is perhaps one of the most important things that you and I will talk about, but sometimes we just, or we just ignore it. We assume, well, it's not something that we deal with, so let's not even focus on it. It's a big deal. So big that Jesus himself prayed for it hours before he was arrested. Moments before his life would end on the cross, uh, he prayed this prayer. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. So not for his disciples, not for his apostles. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, by the way. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. If it's something that's that important to Jesus that he would pray over it and for it moments before he was crucified, then we need to probably pay attention. Why? I'm convinced the church, if it can't, if we can't demonstrate love and unity, then no one will. If the church can't demonstrate love and unity, then no one will. It's, it, it's important for us to be one for the sake of what God's going to do here, but it's important for the world to see us being one so that they experience love and unity that this world can't otherwise provide. So Paul's going to address that in Ephesians chapter 4. When our fourth week as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he starts chapters one through three with some big kind of doctrinal ideas. Like ideas about how we come to know Christ, what happens when we come, come to know Christ. They're, they're doctrinal, they're big picture. And then in chapter four, he transitions from doctrine to duty, to obligation. As it turns out, the benefits that we've received in Ephesians chapters one through three come with a certain amount of responsibility. So he's gonna talk about those. So, three weeks ago, we talked about being redeemed. Last, or two weeks ago, we talked about being recreated. Last week, we uh, were reinforced. Uh, This week, Paul is redirecting his church. He's shifting focus. He's making sure they understand that in order to be the church that God is calling them to be, there's some things that they have to do. There's some responsibilities that have been put in place for them. So, let's see what he says. Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, grace lovers in the room, like myself, get very uncomfortable when we read verses like this, especially if we take them out of context. Because I read that, and if this is the context that I have, and this is all that I understand, well, that looks a lot like works to me, and I know from other places in the Bible that I'm not saved by anything that I do, but what Christ has done for me. 
One commentator put it this way. He said, it's interesting that religions are saying to a dying world, do something and be somebody. God says just the opposite. He says, be somebody and do something. See, the order matters. And so it's really important as we walk through this that you understand who it is that Paul is addressing. He's addressing the church. So it's those who have already been redeemed and recreated. That's his audience here. It's super important. So, so if you are someone here in this room who is not yet a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ, this does not apply to you. Not yet. Don't tune, don't tune me out. Listen as a prospective follower of Christ. But this is for the church. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you profess him to be Lord and Savior, this is for you. Listen up, because it gets really, really important. Verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, again, go back to verse 3 here. This... Listen, I have a really tar- hard time being humble when we're so awesome. Amen? Right? Uh, it's really hard to be gentle in a world that's extremely aggressive. It's hard to be patient when sometimes we have to deal with idiots. It's really hard to have peace when everyone is in disagreement. And so right away, right away, there's tension in this verse for me. Like this responsibility that God has bestowed on me, that he's given you and I, is something that's going to be extremely challenging and difficult. Verse 4. Paul then, almost seemingly anticipating my response. Again, we're talking about us as a church, right? This is unity within the church at this point. Paul, assuming or, or predicting my response, reminds us of what we have then in common. He says, There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I love that verse. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Paul is saying that, yeah, you know what, maybe you won't agree on what type of coffee to serve before church, but remember you're from the same body. We might not be able to come to terms with what style or type of worship music we have, but remember, you have the same spirit residing inside of you. We might not even be able to agree on the frequency of communion, but we have the same hope. We might use different translations of the Bible and maybe agree that, or can't agree which is better or which is appropriate, but remember, you have the same Lord, the same faith, and the same Father. Then, he says, even if you can't figure that out, don't forget about the grace that's been bestowed upon you. The same grace that was bestowed upon the person that you are interacting with. Church, the church is, is never going to agree on anything. Everything. <laughs> it's not. For us to sit here and say that, that we have to agree on everything, I think is just, it's foolishness. We're different, we're unique, and we're flawed. 
So you have to understand first, too, that when we talk about what, what Paul is calling us to do, and perhaps what even Jesus prayed for us to experience, that, that unity isn't uniformity. What Paul is calling us to do is to not to be the same, but to be united. To, to, to be together even though we're different. And again, as if Paul knew that we were going to deal with that, he addresses that in the next part of this verse. Uh, he says this, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers— so, so, so different types of people that serve within the church, right? And that list could go on and on and on. We all have different attributes, different gifts, different skills. He said, so, so Christ gave them to the church to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is what doctrine shifting to responsibility looks like. It's spiritual maturity, it's growth, it's the ability to withstand the flow of culture. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul talked in Ephesians chapter 2 that before we knew Jesus, we were kind of moving with the flow of the air, the pendulum of society and culture, and Paul says, no, 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 you don't do that anymore. You are going to unite, you are going to mature so that you can withstand the pressures of this world. And you're going to do it together as one body. Church, there is nothing, nothing that Satan loves more than a broken church. He loves it. He loves when the church can't agree. He loves when the church argues over secondary doctrinal issues that causes churches to not work together because when the church is broken it can't grow to the extent by which God is intending it to grow and Satan knows that Paul realizes that and so he's imploring imploring the church us to unify so how do we do it verse 15 <laughs> he says instead Instead of being separate, instead of allowing the world to break you apart, instead of giving in to, to really how the world thinks we should operate, he says, speaking truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Speaking truth in love. I want to talk about that for a second. Because I, I, I read those words and... I think, I think I have a grasp on what that looks like. I'm going to give you a disclaimer here. I, I want to have a conversation about something that I am still vetting out. A lot of times I, I prefer to be up here like completely confident and, and, and like knowing I have all like this is not something I've really quite gotten figured out. And so I need you to give me some grace as we walk through this. Okay? So when we talk about speaking truth in love, I think I, and maybe you, sometimes have that confused with being right. If, sometimes I think we confuse speaking truth in love with being right. 
that it's my job to convince you, if I'm speaking truth, then it's my job to convince you to see my perspective, my point of view, by any means necessary. I confuse speaking truth with love and being right. Here's the problem. Listen, I love being right more than anything else in the world. (laughs) Ask the team. Like, ask anyone I work with. It's like my most favorite thing is being right and proving other people wrong. I love it. I can't find anywhere in the Gospels or otherwise where Jesus says we have to be right. Nowhere, nowhere does he command us to be right. He does say that we love God and love people. He says we speak truth, we stand in truth, we own the truth. I don't see it anywhere in the gospel where he says we have to be right. What what does it look like then for the church, if that is the case, what does it look like for the church and its body to focus more on standing up, standing firm, and standing in truth? instead of our insistence on being right, our position. See, what happens when we insist on being right versus standing in truth is this idea of love is contingent upon your willingness to accept my truth or allowing me to be right. So so for the church to be who Christ intended her to be, we, we can't require an acceptance of our position for a disbursement of love. Or better yet, it, uh, the speaking truth in love doesn't mean or doesn't equal loving when truth is accepted. Because if my insistence is on being right, and, and that's how I speak truth in love, then oftentimes I hold back on my disbursement of love until you accept my position of truth. And when that happens, we can't be unified. When that happens, churches split. When that happens, people get angry and they leave. When that happens, people walk away from this amazing thing that God is doing because of an insistence or persistence in being right. This is so incredibly hard. So incredibly hard. And I think it's why Paul starts this chapter with talking about humility and patience and love because he knows that the only way you're going to be able to achieve this is if you begin to submit yourself to others and to God. Also not an easy thing for us to do. For the church to be the church, we have to figure out a way to be unified. To put aside whether or not we are right, or rather perceived as right, because if, listen, if we're holding fast to this, we know where the truth is. But putting that aside and simply loving, continuing to speak truth, whether or not you accept my position or not, doesn't change the fact that I'm going to love you doesn't change and shouldn't change the fact that you love me. I think what we do sometimes, or what I do, is we tend to channel the Jesus that flipped over the tables in the temple. Right? Like, you know the story? Jesus walked into the the temple and he cleaned house. He flipped over tables. And for the record, that's one of my most favorite versions of Jesus. I love that Jesus. There have been so many times where I have wanted to do that. I love the table-flipping Jesus. But, but, now listen, in doing that, do we overlook the fact 
that Jesus sat at more tables than he flipped. Do do we overlook the fact that Jesus sat and had dinner with the Pharisees, the very people that would arrest and crucify him? Does we overlook the fact by, by channeling that version that Jesus sat with sinners over and over and over again, men and women who didn't agree with him, and I'm certain he didn't agree with them, but it didn't matter. He simply spoke truth in love. There's ever a person in the history of humanity who had the ability to prove himself right, it was Jesus Christ. He had that ability, but he didn't. He simply spoke truth in love. The reason he was crucified is because people didn't accept his position. He simply spoke truth in love. Didn't matter if he was perceived as right or wrong. He spoke truth in love, and he did so until the very end, hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Didn't matter if he was perceived as right or wrong. He simply spoke truth in love. Church, if the church cannot demonstrate love and unity, no one will. If you can't, if we can't figure out a way to put aside our insistence and persistence of being right and simply speak truth in love, no one will. Look what happens when we put aside our insistence on being right. Verses 16 says, "Him From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When you and I come together, when the churches come together and we put aside our persistence in being right and we simply unify around the truth that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul promises, Christ promises that the church will grow. It grows and the world changes and the eternity changes and people come to know the love and the hope of Jesus Christ because they see how we react. They see how we respond. There are certainly, certainly things that are worth fighting for. I don't want you to misunderstand. Like, like there are times where, where we, we, outside of the confines of this church, we have to draw a line in the stand. We have to stand up. We have to hear our, have our voices heard, but not, not at the neglect of love. There's a way to do it. Jesus modeled it. Paul's imploring us to figure it out church can't demonstrate the love and unity that no one can. I can't overstate, I cannot overstate that the church is the hope of the world. I can't, I, I can't say that enough. Like, any hope this world has of anything, it comes from the church. Not a political party, not a social movement, but the church. We are the hope of the world. And when the church begins to respond in a way that's different from the way the world says we're supposed to respond, guess what happens? The world notices. Uh, Go back to the prayer that Jesus prayed here in John chapter 17. From him, the whole, oh, nope. 
may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When we unify, when we are one, just as the Father and the Son are one, then we demonstrate to the world what unity looks like, what love looks like, what hope looks like, and when we do that, the world notices. See, when the church loves, the world notices. When the church unites, the world notices. When the church loves and unites, Satan quivers in fear. When we commit to simply speaking truth and love, putting aside our desires to be right or perceived as right, and just simply stand in truth. Paul's imploring his church, us, to unite because he knows the consequences of a broken church. He knows what happens when we fight, when we get angry, when we walk away. We were going through this, this sermon as a, as, a, as a team. We do that weekly, just walking through everything. And Emma said something that I was super profound. She said there's, um, there's fear in isolation. When we isolate ourselves, that's when fear creeps in. When we unite, when we walk together, when we simply speak truth in love, there, there's freedom in that. There's freedom in knowing that I'm not alone in this thing that God is calling me to do. There's hope in knowing that I'm not fighting a battle by myself, but I have an army beside me pushing forward each and every day to do this thing that God has called us to do. For that to be my reality, I've got to put aside being right, stand in the truth, and loving above everything else.